Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter, He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, He went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, 
We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, But to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, uh, sent sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then 
God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so today we're continuing with our series. I hope, does everyone have an outline? Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel Series. We are running two series simultaneously. So on the Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel, this is the 104th lesson, which if you do the math, 52 times 2 is 104. So we officially had two years worth of Sundays on this uh, on this. Uh, Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. Uh, this is element 7ND, the pattern of the five first steps into the kingdom of Christ. So we'll talk a little bit about the other title in a minute. But I wanted to comment on the 104th lesson just by way of reminding her we've covered this, oh, four or five times in the last two years. The, you know, why in, in a... In a day and age when starting in about the 1830s, the tendency among Bible-believing Christians has been to reduce the gospel, reduce the gospel, reduce the gospel, uh, both in content of points, but especially in simplicity of presentation. So the idea is to get it down to four laws or five laws or five points or the road through Romans or something that uh, is manageable and easy to remember and and uh, so forth. So why would we spend 104 weeks uh, on the gospel with uh, probably around 50 to go? No, maybe not that many. be interesting to see how many we finish, finish out at by the time we finish. Well, actually, we probably do have at least 50 to go. So, uh, <laughs> but, so why would we do that? It's because we've, we've become accustomed the thinking is the gospel is something for non-Christians to get them to pray a thing called the sinner's prayer. Uh, we have not even put that in the larger context of disciple-making, but we have not put it in the larger context of the gospel is what we live by as Christians every day. We have to come back to the gospel every morning, every afternoon, and every evening. We have to... Uh, to uh, Remind ourselves, uh, you know, point one of the eight is who God is. In the fallen nature of man, in much contemporary religion, has a very reduced vision of God. That's why uh, I'm so glad that Edwin and Beth have chosen to do the Knowledge of the Holy as a little book they're doing with their Monday night prayer meetings because it's good to study the attributes of God because we want to, in our flesh, and in our current cultural condition, we want to uh, make God smaller than he is. And you can't walk with God if he's not, you know, so when we, when we pray the sinner's prayer, we address it to God, but we mean someone very, very much reduced from who the God of the Bible is. And part of our Christian journey is out of darkness into light, is to have our eyes opened up to the grandeur, glory, majesty of God. All the omni-attributes, for instance, his omnipotence and omniscience, his eternal nature, his justice, his holiness, all sorts of immutable and scrutable attributes of God is, is what we need to constantly be remembering as just the first point of the gospel. And from there, of course, the nature of man, our, our society... Uh, of course, you know, you could go back to Sigmund Freud or, uh, or the selfish psychologists like Rollo May and Carl Rogers, whatever. But our, our society has a very different vision of, of who we are as human beings than what the Bible presents. And most Christians today believe some sort of mixture between what the world says you are and what the scriptures say you are. And so again, that has to be revisited all the time. You can't walk with God unless you point two of these eight essential elements is the nature of man. That we're created in God's name. Why do we fight for hours and disciple for years uh, some drunk we found uh, in, the, in the jail? 
Because he or she was created in the image of God. Why do we fight for the, the value of life, both, both in old age and in, in conception and so forth? Because of we're created in the image of God and so forth. What, um, almost all ver- versions of the sinfulness of man have been greatly reduced to where we kind of, when we pray the sinner's prayer, when we say, I'm a sinner, we, may, we actually mean, well, I think I've made a few mistakes. You know, there was that time when I was seven, <laughs> and, uh, and I probably need a little help, uh, but we don't realize that we're radically corrupted to the core. In every attitude, motivation, thought, and so forth that enters our heart. And we're in desperate need of rescuing. So these are the kinds of things we as Christians need to think about every day. So that, of course, the, the next step, of course, is the law of God. The law of God helps us see how far short of the glory of God we actually fall. Because sin has this way of kind of masquerading is not that bad. And we think of ourselves as, well, I'm a pretty good person. I just have this addiction problem and this anger and management problem. And I just got a few little problems. <laughs> it's much worse than you think. <laughs> I love my, my pastor, Ray Nether. He actually, that's one of his, one of his, he always goes, cheer up. You're much worse off than you think. But uh, <laughs> um, because the gospel can only be good news if we begin to really understand the bad news. It's tremendous news if we really begin to understand our predicament. We can't even want to want to want to turn toward God. We are running from God all of our lives. You know, and then we stand up in church, I've been seeking God for the truth for all my life, and last night I found God. You liar. (laughs) (laughs) Lying testimony time. (laughs) You know, you know, you finally ran, he finally had you cornered and his, his foot on your neck, and you finally said, I give up, you know. And we prayed the sinner's prayer just as we were. So anyway, I could go on and on with that. You know, we did uh, 30 weeks on just who is Jesus Christ, Christology. So, uh, because again, so much reduction of who Christ is today. So uh, we are doing... Element seven, which is, of course, the idea that in the New Testament, people took five steps at the beginning of their Christian life. We see this pattern throughout the book of Acts. And by the way, the Bible is full of patterns. Exodus 20, verses 8 and 9, and verse 40, Moses is told to see to it that he makes everything in the tabernacle exactly according to the pattern. And then God added, and and, and you can change a few things after you go to a church growth seminar and figure out a better way to do it than mine. No, he didn't. God never said that. Modern man says that. So the, the very idea that God has dictated what the church is and how the most, it's, it's said, I think, rightly, that evangelicalism has very little ecclesiology. Very little. The church is something we use and we add on to the gospel. But you can't receive Christ without receiving the body of Christ. And you can't live with Christ without the body of Christ, Jesus coming through your brothers and sisters every day to you. And so forth. That's, that's intricately, inextricably intertwined with the fabric of the gospel is that you're born into a family. You know, we have lots of little babies around here. And I'm pretty sure they're all born into families. You know, little Susan is right there, so pick on her. She she didn't invent herself. I received life at a Jesus concert. And now now I'm doing it on my own, and I'm going to find the family I feel most comfortable with. So uh, that's why we've spent... 104 weeks, and we'll probably spend at least 50 more on just the gospel. So we're running this coterminously with the Baptized in the Holy Spirit series, which we are doing a longer version of. We did a four-part version in around 2012. 
uh, did a very long version once, but uh, we're not going as long as that. But because in the five steps that people took in the book of Acts, most Christians today have taken two of those five. But most Christians, all Christians in, in the book of Acts took all five of those. And as we're seeing as we look at this pattern, uh, they did that in the first few days of their Christian experience. And so step three, being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Step four, deliverance and healing. Many Christians have never cast out a demon or had a demon cast out of them, but demons are real. And it's a base, Jesus spent 25% of his ministry casting out demons. And how can we say we're following the Jesus of the Bible if we have no experience in that area? That should be a common, everyday kind of Christian experience. Now, I'm not talking, we'll, we're going to do a whole series on demons and deliverance as part of this gospel series. That'll be the next mini-series within the bigger series after the series about the Holy Spirit. And I'm not uh, you know, worried that there's a demon in the toaster or, <laughs> you know, or in the sound system, although some of the sound system guys suspect there is sometimes. Um, sound, those sound system demons. Um, oh, I, some of you have cars that have demons. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> or maybe a dog. But uh, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, totally kidding on all that. So, but most Christians uh, don't do anything with that. And that was basic to biblical life. Uh, and lastly, of course, a New Testament lifestyle, which included much more radical uh, individual uh, spiritual disciplines than what we do today. They didn't just have devotionettes, and if you can just read the Bible for five minutes and a day and so forth, devotionettes make raisinettes. You will, you will dry up and die. Uh, if you don't really begin to embrace what Christians have historically believed as spiritual disciplines. And uh, those were always uh, a, a part, uh, you know, the cross has always got a vertical aspect, uh, you know, God to man. And without that aspect, you can't hold up the horizontal aspect. But the horizontal aspect is also every bit as much of a part of the cross, which is kind of symbolic and speaks of our relationship with one another. The Christian life was meant to be lived in a family of families called the church. And the church is not supposed to be Sunday morning, Sunday night, and, and the really spiritual people come to midweek Bible study. It's supposed to be a way of life together every day, all the time, from house to house, uh, taking our meals together, being devoted to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, prayers, etc., so uh, that's uh, step five, and we will look at that. Now, so, uh, well, shoot, all that by way of introduction. I always kind of give us a little more introduction because we have different people come and go. So jump down to, uh, let's see, Roman numeral three. On Ascension Thursday, Jesus uh, would give you there Luke's version and uh, of in the, at the Gospel of Luke and Luke's version in Acts 1. And both of them use the phrase, the promise of the Father. And so uh, that's really kind of what we're looking at. And if you look at the wording carefully in Acts 1, 4, and 5, it makes it very clear that the promise of the Father, using that word for, refers to being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the baptism in the Spirit is actually the culmination of all the promises of God, starting with the Proto-Evangel in Genesis 3.15. Now, at the bottom of the page are the five things that we think happened when people got baptized in the Spirit. So within step three, baptizing the Holy Spirit, uh, we're basically asking, is there a pattern of these five things happening when someone gets baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that spills over to page two, and we will be revisiting them, as hopefully, as I can get through Acts 10. Thank you, John Gray, for reading Acts 10 to us. And Acts 11. And then, actually, if you go about three-quarters of the way down page two, uh, in the first 12 verses of Acts 15, P 
Peter tells the story one more time in what uh, is no, I call Church Council Zero. If you study the seven ecumenical councils that started after uh, Constantine became emperor and so forth, um, I like to call Acts 15 kind of the proto-council or pro prototype of church councils. And uh, so I just call it Church Council Zero. But it's the archetypal or prototypical church council. And uh, you should familiarize yourself with all the things they discussed at Acts 15. So let's, uh, let's go through some things. Just by way of background, in case you don't know, it says that Cornelius was a centurion. A centurion was the commander of 100 troops. And all those troops were always part of a cohort. And the Roman, the Roman army at the time uh, that this is written had 10 cohorts. The cohort number one had 540 soldiers. All the other nine had 480 soldiers. So uh, Cornelius would have actually been the commander of 100 soldiers, uh, but that would be part of a cohort of, of uh, 480 soldiers. This would make him a very wealthy, influential, and important person in the Roman in society of the time. By the way. So, um, the scripture twice in these passages mentioned that that uh, Cornelius fears God. And, uh, of course, we've covered this many times, especially in our Bible studies in Wright State and so forth, but just in case people don't know, uh, in the synagogue system of that day, which there were synagogues in every city throughout the Roman Empire, there were three types of worshipers who came to the synagogues. There were Jewish people who were born biologically Jewish, and uh, they would have been typically raised learning from a rabbi... Uh, from the earliest age and in uh, pr probably the most uh, zealous Jews of the time would have been the Jews from Galilee where Jesus was from and where several of the apostles, Peter, Andrew, James, John, etc. were from. They, uh, those, those people, both men and women, uh, were in the synagogue till age 12, and they would have usually memorized the entire Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible by the age of 12. After which time, most girls did not continue their schooling, but began to learn the skills of being a wife and a mother. Most boys would also start to learn a vocation, but would continue their synagogue training and memorize most of the rest of the Old Testament by the time they were young adults. So when you hear in Acts 4, the, the Sanhedrin say that they were uh, uneducated men, and you hear almost 95% of Christians today say Jesus chose common, ordinary, uneducated men because they're not understanding how to read Scripture in its context and so forth. And the truth is that was just because the Judean uh, Jews were snobs. And they were basically saying, these guys are from Galilee. They didn't go to Harvard like we did. They went to Wright State, you know, <laughs> or something like that, or Ball State, or whatever. They went to Ohio University. They didn't go to, they didn't go to Yale so, or MIT. They, they don't know nothing. That's really kind of what they were saying. But the truth of the matter is, is that Jewish boys and girls raised in Galilee were much more intense about the scriptures. Now, throughout the rest of the Jewish world in the synagogues, there would be a hired uh, rabbi, and they would have still memorized hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the verses of the Pentateuch by age 12, throughout all Jews throughout the empire. And so those were the first group of people who were the biologically born Jews. Secondly... There were the Hellenized or Hellenistic Jews. These were people who were not biologically born Jews. It lists 17 nations in Acts chapter 2 who were, uh, they, these were people converted from all the nations the Romans had conquered. And there was such a moral decadence in the Roman Empire that many, many, many people were attracted to the superior morality of the law. And therefore, 
there were tens of thousands of converts to Judaism among the Gentiles in the, scattered throughout the synagogues throughout the, uh, the Greco-Roman world. Okay? So, again, Acts 2 lists 16 nations that were present who were converted Hellenized Jews that were there uh, because they, they were committed enough to go to Jerusalem for the festivals, for the three festivals of each year. So, there was a third kind of synagogue attender, which was what Cornelius was, a God-fearer. A God-fearer was someone who believed in the God of the Bible, believed in the moral superiority of the law, believed in it enough to attend synagogue, but did not convert to Judaism, which would require to be circumcised, for one, and to learn Hebrew, for another, and many other requirements. Generally, these people often did not convert to Judaism, either because they found circumcision abhorrent, as the Gentile world thought circumcision was a total mutilation of the body and just bizarre and weird and, and were very against it, uh, or secondly, because the social cost and political economic cost would have been too high. If Cornelius were to, to not be just a God-fearer, if he were to actually convert to Judaism, he could no longer be in, uh, employed by the Roman Empire. He would have lost his career over it. And we see several people of that uh, persuasion in the New Testament who are, who are um, officers in the, Roman Empire, in the Roman army but did not full, but in, attended synagogue, supported the synagogue financially, believed in the God of the Bible, but did not convert to Judaism. That's who Cornelius is, and that's who his household is. So that's kind of important for the backdrop here. Um, now, the next thing you'd kind of need to understand is that Genesis 3 talks about how God will put enmity between the seed of the woman so, and the seed of the serpent. So in the scriptures, clearly for all the promises of God, Genesis 12, for instance, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The, the major emphasis of the whole Old Testament is that the kingdom of God will come to all the Gentiles and that God is building a people for himself and that that people would be from every nation, tribe, tongue, and peoples in the whole earth. That is like the most important theme of the Old Testament. Yet the religious paradigms of the Jews throughout most of the centuries precluded their believing that. And they, in fact, hated the Gentiles and were prejudiced against the Gentiles. And that is actually, of all the reasons the prophets cry out judgment against the northern kingdom, and then which was destroyed in 722 B.C. in the southern kingdom, destroyed by Babylon in 586 B.C., the 722 was the Assyrians. Um, the major reason is because the Jews were supposed to take the superiority of the knowledge and truth of the law. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 2. If you're a Jew and you boast that we you know, are enlighteners of the world and so forth, they were supposed to mediate the ways and law and presence and knowledge of God to the nations around them, and they always refused to do so. They, you know, much like it's very common today for Christians to you know, be at church talking to all the people they know already and so forth and not necessarily be friendly to someone new that comes in their midst or whatever, but it goes beyond that. Like that, like bringing the new into the kingdom is supposed to be a way of life in both testaments. Offering the kingdom to those outside. That's why Jesus made the cord of whip of, and, and chased the money changers out because they were selling in the court of the Gentiles, which was supposed to be representative of where the Jews reached the outside world for, for God. And they saw no importance of the court of the Gentiles, so they turned it into a place to market the temple sacrifices. It wasn't, people always go, oh my God, you're going to sell books at the back of the church. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Jesus is going to turn over the book shows. <laughs> You know, 
Jesus was upset because they were doing it in the court of the Gentiles. And their, God's house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And that God never has you pray for anything that you're not supposed to follow up and actually do something about. Minister to, reach out to, and so forth. So that's important. So Peter was raised in Galilee, or and, uh, and so he would have known the Bible thoroughly by the time uh, he started following John the Baptist. After he switched to following Jesus, he, would, he was taught by Rabbi Jesus, who was a rabbi unlike the other rabbis because he actually had authority, and I could go into there's different types of rabbis, only certain kinds were allowed to bring new interpretations to the scriptures and that's what jesus jesus is saying all the accepted uh, interpretations of scripture in among in judea and galilee are wrong and i'm going to tell you how to read moses correctly that's what rabbi jesus was doing and he and a, a disciple of a rabbi would follow the rabbi, live with the rabbi, and his goal was to learn all the attitudes and motivations and teachings and knowledge so that he became exactly like the rabbi. And so when the, uh, when the most prestigious rabbis, like um, Gamaliel with, with Paul in, in, in the book of Acts, uh, invite you to follow him, the rabbi is actually saying, I believe you could become as, go as far with God as me. The rabbi is actually, when he invites you to be a disciple, is saying, I believe in the call of God on your life and God's ability to take you as far as he's taken me, and I can take you that far and hopefully help you go a few steps further. So that is what Jesus is doing when he says, follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. I'm going to make you just as great a rabbi as me. With all the right attitudes and all the right... That's why Peter says, Jesus, if that's you, bid me to come on the water. Because if Rabbi Jesus can walk on the water, then I as his disciple can walk on the water. Because the, the, God is going to empower me to do any, everything the rabbi can do that I'm following. We get into this thing where, well, I'm not supposed to be as godly as the person discipling me and so forth because they're more mature. Yes, you are. You're supposed to pass them. All right, so that's a little backdrop. So Peter is actually, grows up in this environment. I'm never going to get done with any of this. Oh, Lord. Uh, I need uh, 90 minutes. We need to start at 9 o'clock. Um, Peter grows up in this environment. He knows the scriptures way more than any pastor you've ever met today. Um, he is discipled by Jesus himself for three and a half years. The Holy Spirit comes on him and selects him to be the, the one to give. You know, whenever God is doing something, he first calls one person and, and works with them and sanctifies them and sets them apart. So God makes a choice to have Peter be the first Christian proclamation of the resurrection, ascension, and the present kingdom and realities of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. And now, Peter is still, uh, six to eight years later, he still has no room in his heart or mind at all that the Gentiles are co-heirs of the kingdom of God. And this message isn't just for the... Then when Jesus said Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth they were still thinking that meant the Jews that were spread throughout all these places. Right? And he didn't know yet that it was the Gentiles that were spread beyond all these places and more to the ends of the earth and the four corners, which is what Abraham symbolically, when he was told to look to the north, east, west, and so forth, that was all symbolic of eventually it was going to go to the four corners of the earth. That was a foreshadowing. So um, the, when, when uh, the angel appears to Cornelius and uh, sends, sends him to Peter and Joppa, which is 36 miles away, a two-day's walk, and he gives Peter the vision, 
Peter's eyes during this whole story are opened up to see something he was completely blind to that was always scriptural all along. The Holy Spirit will never open your eyes up to something that's not scriptural, but he, you should regularly, often, and always have encounters where the Holy Spirit opens your eyes up to things you were missing in Scripture all along that were always there and always was the true meaning of Scripture, and you just had it wrong up till now. That's what's happening in this passage, okay? And so um, Peter's very religious upbringing and prejudices had blinded him to the most important message uh, most repeated message of the entire Old Testament. So that's a kind of an important lesson for all of us. And so when he gets to Cornelius, he actually starts by saying, I most surely understand now that God is no respecter of persons and that those who fear him and all nations and all this kind of stuff. Okay. And then he starts preaching Jesus. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, a man anointed by the Holy Spirit who, who got, went about doing good and healing all those who are oppressed by the devil and so forth. And as he's proclaiming to him, the, the Holy Spirit falls on, on Cornelius and the Gentiles exactly, exactly the same way that uh, he fell on um, the, the disciples in, in Acts chapter 2. Okay? So that's some background. Let's see if I can, in five or six minutes, get through our five points. First one is, is this a distinct and separate experience? Now, one of the things that we've made very clear is in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 9, and we'll see next week in Acts 19, it is very, very clearly a second experience. This one, in the way we think approach Scripture as modern people in our paradigms and prejudices, is not that obvious on the surface. Because we actually think that people get born again when they come forward and pray the sinner's prayer at an altar call. And then if they didn't do that, then it wasn't, no, it didn't happen. But actually, you get converted during the preaching. And so you know, when you receive Jesus, two things happen. Your spirit is made alive. Your spirit, which was formerly dead and outside of fellowship because of sin with God and so forth, your spirit still existed but it was what the Bible called dead. It wasn't in fellowship with God. Your spirit has the Holy Spirit in her, and you're regenerated. And uh, if the gospel is properly lived in the community and you properly hear the message and so forth, you're converted, which includes conviction of sin, drawing to God, confession of sin, repentance, and trust in Jesus and no longer trusting in your own performance based in your own goodness. And you get all the... All the layers of self-righteousness and performance get obliterated, and you totally trust in him. That's what's supposed to happen at conversion. Okay? And that happens. The, if you pray a sinner's prayer, I'm not against it. I just like to put more content into what people actually think they're praying. <laughs> you know, um, If you pray a sinner's prayer, it's really just a formalizing of what's actually happened already. So what happens in this passage is God goes ahead of them and gives a, a godly man, Cornelius, and his household, and he invites all his neighbors and they, because they saw angels, and the angels told him an exact person to ask for in an exact address 36 miles away, and it was all exactly as it was told. Do you think that would lift your faith a little? Right? And then uh, Peter comes in and insults them and says, you know, it's not lawful for me to eat with Gentiles. <laughs> you know? And then he uh, kind of rescues himself a little bit. Well, I know now that. And uh, so he tries to uninsult them as best he can and proclaims the kingdom to them, right? So that's why Acts 11 is important because when Peter is accosted by the Jewish followers for saying, uh, for having gone to the Gentiles and not only preached with them, he stayed for dinner. <laughs> you know, the, which is totally uh, against what they thought the law taught, but it wasn't against what the law taught. It was just against their re wrong and religious interpretations and their moralistic, therapeutic, deistic version of, of the faith, similar to what we have today. So... Um, 
they, uh, they're like all upset at him. So he recounts the whole story and he uses the phrase, and that's why uh, looking at translations and time text, I believe the ESV says when we believed. The New American Standard, which is always more careful of time text, says after believing. So what happened is they were regenerated during the message, and they had a second encounter with the Holy Spirit when he fell on them. Now, um, it clearly is a distinct and separate experience. Now, is the outward evidence, the, the inner reality, speaking in tongues, I'm going to go over it today and mess up our schedule. I apologize to John in advance and the worship team. I, re, I really want to finish this message. Um, he, um, it says the Holy Spirit fell on them, and they all began to speak in tongues and exalt God. Unlike modern evolutionary thinking, there is never a time where the gospel was spread by speaking in tongues. That was never a purpose of the gospel or anything like that. Although at times it was a sign for unbelievers, as Paul said. But from the Tower of Babel on, over 2,000 years earlier, people began to learn the languages of their neighbors and so forth. And at the time, after Alexander conquered uh, the areas that became known Panhellenism, I can't go into all that Panhellenism, all the way to India, the Middle East, Northern Africa, and so forth. And the Romans conquered the Greeks. All the people that were present in Acts 2 and all the people who were present here would have spoke Greek and Latin and their national language. Much like many of you know, our Kenyan friends all speak five or six languages, at least the adult ones do. The kids have lost their languages mostly and uh, just speak like urban <laughs> or, or something, but uh, but um, you know when Ann Moya and Simon and Josephine get together, they're speaking Kukuyu and well, I forget all the names of them, Swahili and English and uh, where's Edwin? He could can come out. I forget I forget some of the names of the languages, but they run it all together and they don't and and. It was that way in the Acts 2. It was that way in Acts 10. Now, these people would have also known some Hebrew because that's what was read in the, the scriptures were read in Hebrew, and they would have been read in the Septuagint version in Greek in the synagogues. But these people would have known some Hebrew. They were not like, you know, the joke, our Swiss friends who were just here to visit for a few weeks. What do you call someone who speaks only one language? An American. <laughs> you know, um, all the people in Cornelius' household would have spoke a little bit of Hebrew, a lot of Greek, Latin, and whatever national language of, of origin they knew. So uh, there was no need for them to hear the gospel in tongues, and it never says that. It says they hear them speaking the gospel and exalting God. It's a language of praise, worship, and prayer. They hear, Just like in Acts 2, they heard them speaking the mighty deeds of God. Now, our faith is rooted in the historical, redemptive acts of a God who lives outside and above history and has had eternal decrees and is intervening in history and so forth. So, when you exalt and magnify God and, and, and praise the mighty deeds of God, it would have gospel content. But I, you know, like when we sing today at 1030, when uh, we get back a closer to being on schedule, and I'm kind of messing up our schedule, I know, but I'm, I really want you to get this. When we're worshiping the Lord, we will be actually singing gospel content but I doubt many of you are being like, I hope that fourth person in the fourth row hears about what we're singing and becomes a Christian. You know, No, we're, we're worshiping the Lord to worship the Lord. That's what happens when they uh, received the, the prayer language to speak in tongues. Okay. Now, thirdly, does it normally follow shortly after conversion from a few moments to a few days? Uh, we've demonstrated, you know, like Paul was three days. In Acts 8, the Samaritans was somewhere between three days and 14 days. We went through all the math and all that why uh, and so forth. This is probably, who knows, 
I actually think the sermons in the book of Acts are kind of a capsulation of the major points. So maybe Peter spoke an hour or so. Maybe they had received the Holy Spirit and were regenerated 30 minutes ago. But it's certainly not days and days. I once spoke a little over six hours in one meeting, which I'm not going to do this morning, thank the Lord. But, uh, <laughs> but it was a meeting that, where we had invited a lot of leaders to go, and we, they had been pre-warned that I would talk at least five or six hours. So um, that was a, a message called The Failure of Protestant Christianity. It was kind of a historical message going from the Reformation and why we're losing the culture kind of thing. Uh, and why, why we need to do a, a, a rethink of our, of our so-called biblical Christianity and get it, get it more right. All right, so point three is simply this. If you combine point one, it's, it happens quickly, and it doesn't involve speaking in tongues. Uh, point, uh, and it's not days, it's moments or maybe an hour or two. Point four is there an atmosphere of spiritual impartation? We've already covered that. Angels appeared to Cornelius. They found it exactly as they were supposed to. Peter sees a vision three times. And Peter in three is a very important thing. Remember that he, Jesus told him he would deny him three times. Jesus restored him three times. And now he sees this vision three times. That's because God is saying, this is very much as important as when I say, Peter, do you love me? Tend my flock. I am now telling you, Peter, that you've been wrong all along, and the gospel is for the Gentiles, and I'm giving you this vision three times so you could be sure how sure and how important this is. Okay? And so you can't possibly miss it that the gospel was supposed to be for the Gentiles from Genesis 3 on as he had made clear to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and so forth, and all through the prophets and everything. So um, the atmosphere of spiritual impartation, there's so much expectancy that the angels had told Cornelius to gather his household together. But if you read what John read to us carefully, he not only got his household together, he invited all the neighbors. <laughs> Believe me, he was expecting, you guys don't want to miss this. <laughs> this guy's coming from Joppa, and he's going to tell us words by which we can be saved and, and our whole household. And, and listen, you could get grafted in. You, you really need to come to this meeting. <laughs> you know, and, and because of who he was, that carried some authority in the neighborhood, so to speak. All right, lastly, is are there additional biblical manifestations? Well, very importantly, A, Peter says, can anyone refuse the water to be baptized? As we saw in Acts 8 with Simon the Magician, it is quite possible to take, at the, it, um, in the Bible, there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and that one baptism is made up of two baptisms because biblical math, one plus one is one. Baptism in water is the one baptism entering the Christian faith in the church. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is one baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one spirit we were all baptized into one faith. Together they are one baptism. And it is possible to baptize people in water who aren't really converted. And in fact, you'll hear in certain... Uh, Certain subcultures today, you'll, you'll ask someone, what, am I a Christian? And they'll say, oh, yeah, I was baptized when I was eight or whatever. <laughs> you know, And I'll say, yeah, and I went to McDonald's when I was 12, but I've not been converted to a hamburger yet. <laughs> you know? So that's not what I asked you. Okay, so, and I don't want to minimize the importance of baptism, but as we saw in the case of Simon Magish, of the Magician, it is possible for human beings to wrongly baptize someone. But it is not possible for God to wrongly baptize someone with the Holy Spirit. So God took the initiative and reversed the order because he is blowing away their paradigms. Peter tells us in the next chapter that he took six other brothers with him. And when they came back, the Jews took exception and then Peter does this, the same thing Jesus always does. Jesus creates a, a story or an argument or whatever. 
And then he ends with a question that the, that the conclusion is in, inescapable. I believe in logic it's called an enthymeme. Someone could ask me. But Jesus ends up by saying, so at the end of the story he goes, so is it okay to do good on the Sabbath? You, you think it's okay if I do a good thing on the Sabbath? You know, he's putting the screws to him. He's like, you guys are supposed to be the guardians of good and evil and so forth, and what you're telling me is it's not lawful for me to heal someone on the Sabbath? Your thinking is entirely screwed up in reverse, and he's completely demonstrating that to him. So Peter tells the whole story, and he does it in such a way that he ends up with, so if God poured out the Spirit on the Gentiles exactly the same way as he did us, who are you to stand in God's way? Or no, he says, who am I to stand in God's way? But the implication is, so who are you to stand in God's way? And then it says, uh, the, everyone says the Bible doesn't have any contradictions, but then the next passage contradicts itself because it says they shut up and then they said, then they began to talk and glorify God. I don't know how you like be quiet and shut up and begin to open your mouth and praise the Lord at the same time. But the next verse says they did both those things. So maybe they shut up for like, 10 seconds, I don't know, like. <laughs> and then they began to glorify God with their mouths. So, our fifth point uh, is simply this, is their ongoing manifestations. They clearly recognize they spoke in tongues just like we did. Every one of them spoke in tongues just like we did. That It was a language of exalting God's in praise. Therefore, God has filled them with the Holy Spirit. We cannot avoid that conclusion. We must invite them into the kingdom, into the church. We must water baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and so forth, and accept them as full members of the kingdom of God on an equal footing as us. They probably didn't even like that they were doing that. At least some of them didn't. It, they, you know, people change a little slower than God would want them to, I think, sometimes. And so, and then again, they take exception. So, the, you know, another sign is always the Spirit leads you into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right away, they get in trouble with the Judaizers back in Jerusalem. And they have to defend themselves. But Peter masterfully recognizes, I'm not really defending myself here. And what these guys are upset about is what God did. And so like Jesus, he'd seen Jesus do time after time. He, he turns the case into what it really is. What you're upset with is God. And you're going to have to deal with that. So um, that's Cornelius and the Gentiles. Peter tells the same story again in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. And uh, I put some of the scriptures in there and some of the things that are important is that God made a distinction by choosing Peter. Even though Paul was going to eventually be the apostle to the Gentiles and so forth, God always takes his new movement out of his old movement. And he never, just like he, even though Jesus prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem on Mount, the, on Mount of Olives and the Mount Olive Discourse and so forth, Jesus uh, spent three and a half years discipling uh, a body of Jews who were, the, who, who were the remnant that God birthed the kingdom into all the earth through. He doesn't ever have discontinuity with what he's done before, as in the modern dispensationalism and the complete discontinuity between testaments. Nonsense. He's always continuing to unfold one story, one purpose, one eternal decree that he's told from all, from all eternity, and he's just taking the next step and what he's clearly foretold he will do. And therefore, he always takes his existing people uh, and, and has them birth the next generation of the new people. So he chooses Peter, the same person he chose on Pentecost, to be the first one to, to proclaim the implications that the, to the Gentiles and that the kingdom is for all the Gentiles. And Peter... When he says that in Acts 15, he's not being a TV evangelist for promoting his own ministry and telling you you should buy this book or the tapes or anything. He's not drawing attention to himself. He's trying to say, God did this according to the pattern he always does. That's how we know it's God. 
So when God made a choice of Peter, it's because Peter's not trying to brag or anything. He's saying it had to be that way because Jesus always continues with the same people who hand the baton to the next people. And it would not have been of God if it had not been Peter who did it first. Amen.